Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome to the Waiting List Podcast. And today we welcome back our good friend, Mark Cho from the Armory, which has stores in Hong Kong and in New York. Uh, great to have you back on the show, Mark, and thank you for making time. I know it's a very, very busy month for you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. So how have things been with you recently? What's keeping you busy? Um, things are good. We're kind of in the middle of the fall winter season. So a lot of clothing stuff, a lot of selling going on. Uh, and the other big thing is uh, I'm having this auction. I'm having this auction called the Beauty and Everything Sale. And it's about 60 of my personal pieces from my collection, it's the majority of my collection, uh, that is being sold by Philips through online auction. And um, the hope is that by selling all these pieces, I can trade up to a new store in New York. Like my dream is to try and buy a property in New York. And so I want to try and raise cash this way. Okay. So you actually have a store in New York, right? So why? I have two stores in New York. Okay. <laughs> So two stores. So you want another store? No. So I so the two stores in New York, I actually already own one. I bought that years ago and I got really lucky with that. And um, I would love to try and own the other one too and just be my own landlord because it just makes life a lot easier um, if you have your own property, you know? Okay. Mm. Um, and the title of the auction, The Beauty and Everything, is that mm. a name that you came up with? Yeah, I... I spent a lot of time kind of trying to theme the auction and, and just giving it a little bit more personal color. Um, I, you know, I can give you, I give you guys some of the, some of the other names I thought about. Um, I actually wanted to call it the magpie collection originally. <laughs> and I told the Hong Kong team at Phillips and they're like, it's magpie. I'm like, ah, oh, shit, it's not going to work. <laughs> and then there's also like just, the plain old Mark Cho sale, right? But the problem with the name, like uh, the problem with both these names is that people don't know what the hell you're talking about, then it's not very <laughs> useful, is it, right? Like if people don't know what a magpie is, then it's obviously yeah. not very interesting. But also and what a magpie no does idea, as well. Yeah. Right? You know, if you type in Mark Cho, you might still find like the, the American dentist named Mark Cho as well. So calling it a Mark Cho sale might have the opposite effect. So in the end, I thought, well, what do I really, why did I collect all this stuff in the first place? And it's because... You know, I bought all this stuff because I thought it was just there was something beautiful in it all. Um, and it, it was getting to a point where I was buying stuff, not even for like, not even because like maybe an entire watch was perfect and amazing. Even just like little, little features were like enough to push me over the line and, and snap something up. You know, like if the movement was great or if I thought the hands were great or if I thought like the dial configuration is great, like just like nerdy trivial reasons to some people i mean to a lot of people uh, to me were actually still very important and enough for me to collect them so how long has it taken to amass this let's say these 60 watches that you are bringing forward um so there's stuff that goes all the way back to like when i first started collecting and it started in 2006 so it's 16 years now mm. wow wow okay and i guess the like obvious question would be how was it in actually curating that 60 pieces because it's only part of your collection right so you have to make a decision on what you let go what you want to keep what was that process like 
it was pretty it was pretty simple actually it was simple and kind of ruthless so uh the main criteria was have i worn this in the last six months mm -hmm. and if the answer was no it was definitely in the pile and then uh i looked at stuff that i had let's say a um anything that was made for me or that I handed in designing, like some of the collaboration watches we did, like the Narihita letter cutter or the Moser total eclipse, um, or even that FP Journe, um, special, the resonance special, like I kept that stuff, but then, you know, stuff that's valuable, but, but that I haven't worn in a while, like the, um, like the Nautilus mm. or, um, stuff that actually got to a point where it was just too expensive. I didn't feel that comfortable even owning it anymore. Um, that's also in the pile. Mm. Hmm. So have you played with the idea before of doing this before? And it's like only now, because I was just thinking, you know, we generally would say the market has taken a correction and maybe last mm. year, you know, it, you know, it was hyped up and stuff. So why now? Is it literally because of the store or? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, there's no, I would have been perfectly happy to keep all these watches forever. Uh, I mean, other than this sort of slightly ridiculous feeling I have, where I'm like, Jesus, I have so many of these things. Mm. Um, but the store was a really good catalyst for this to happen. You know, because I don't see this as like, oh, I'm losing anything. I see this as trading up. You know, I've traded up from this pile of things in my safe to like something that I can enjoy, my team can enjoy, my customers can enjoy. Like, I, I think that's much more exciting and to me, much more meaningful. Like, I love my watches, don't get me wrong, but I love my store even more. Do you mm. do this with your clothes? Like, do you go through them? I actually, yeah, I have, I, I do actually kind of call and consolidate my clothes pretty often, mm -hmm. um, partly for, actually, mostly for wardrobe space reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we have this like outlet called drop 93 so that's where mm. our old stock and also our secondhand and consignment clothing goes mm. um so a lot of my clothes actually do end up there or if it fits any of my colleagues my colleagues are always welcome to it first do you do you ever go back to the drop 93 and <laughs> take some of the clothes to work <laughs> Wait, go there and take it back you mean yeah um i would except a lot of times i got too fat to fit it so i can't there's no point in taking it back anymore <laughs> you know talking about like the drop um, 93 like concept mm -hmm. um you know in watch lovers terms we always talk about like yeah, watch lovers always love to talk about like i don't know a three watch collection or you know a perfect collection would be 10 watches um we can get onto that later but what about clothing you know, do you, because clothing is so much more accessible, right? You can, and there's shoes, there's trousers, jackets, you know, do you put a limit to that? Is it literally like when you say wardrobe space, well, that's the size of your home, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, it is literally the size, like, okay, obviously wherever you can put stuff, you can call that your wardrobe. I don't know if it's great to just have stacks of jeans on the couch or something like that. But um, if your question is, should you try to pare down your wardrobe to a reasonable number of items? Uh, I think it's yes and no. So I think that the act of paring down any sort of collection or any sort of big group of belongings is very healthy and very useful because it teaches you what, it teaches you your taste, it hones your taste 
And it means that you'll pick better stuff, you'll keep better stuff, and you'll let go of the stuff that's sort of extraneous. Um, but I, I don't believe in capsule wardrobes. I don't believe in like two watch collections um, because for me, all of these items that I'm gonna put on my body, they're all, they're all like, they're all forms of personal expression. And in the same way that you wouldn't necessarily limit your vocabulary, you also wouldn't limit these things that you use as decoration also. You know, sometimes your mood is this, sometimes your mood is that. And sometimes you need a specific color or a specific texture or a specific watch um, in order to kind of like realize that communication. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say less is more. I think that there's a, there's a healthy number and there's an unhealthy number. And um, and it just depends from person to person. That so, was a very yeah, good answer. I like, yeah, I had so many questions because one, I'm really surprised that you don't believe in the capsule collection because I thought you would be someone that would curate something and then every top would match with the pants. And then the next thing I was thinking was I always have wanted to have a capsule collection, but I love statement pieces. So every single thing would have a loud print. So this would be a zebra print and that would be a leopard print. So in the end, I just have a collection that looks like what, like what I imagine a clown would have. <laughs> like it's just a mess. <laughs> but you know, at the same at the same time, like I feel like everyone would look at your clothes, even yeah. if you weren't there, they could see your pile of clothes and be like, "Oh, that's Lung Lung's clothes. That's the Lung Lung collection." Okay. And I lo I love that idea, right? The idea that like your your collection of belongings is so identifiable that it people mm -hmm. automatically associate it with you, whether you're even there or not. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I kind of see the sad side of that, you know, if someone passes, right, and you just see that you go into the room, you see the wardrobe, and you really, you'll really feel their presence, right, mm -hmm. just on the items they had. I think, yeah, that's, that just hit me when you said that. Yeah. Um, but just going back to when you said about, like, when you're reflecting on your collection, yeah, and you said that you picked the pieces, if you hadn't worn it for six months, it went into that thing. That First of all, that's a lot of pieces you haven't worn in six months, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I know it's absolutely yeah. true yeah like but did you also see your changing in how you collected the pieces you know from when you started how was it and then how did that progress as your journey went on or was it rather oh, yeah, consistent sure. no it definitely changed a lot I mean I it started it started basically with cheap stuff right like it started with a guy with a limited pay packet and a and it started with a young guy with limited pay packet who was excited to find something that would make him feel like an adult. And I think that when you're a young person, you're always looking for these milestones. Mm. And so you're like, wow, this is, this is like an adult thing. I get to be an adult and go and spend adult money on an adult item. But actually the secret is it's not actually adult money. It's actually quite little money for what it is. So like the value of it was really attractive and it, it served two purposes. Like it's fun to bargain hunt. Um, it's amazing that these things are so beautiful and yet so cheap and it feels like a part of growing up. Mm -hmm. That's how I got started. And then continuing on that vein of like, okay, well, like I want to develop, I want to feel more and more like I'm entering the world. And so then I moved on to like, what are, what are my grails? What are important pieces? And I started kind of shifting towards that sort of stuff. And then I sort of got in my head that, oh, I should try and like, get all of them like like pokemon cards like get the set mm -hmm. and so i started looking at that but after a while 
I realized that, well, sets are not actually all that interesting for me personally, and neither are so-called grail watches. And I noticed that in the end, what I was wearing was just, was never, what I was wearing on a regular basis never really lined up with my expectations anyways. Mm-hmm. So I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to collect very instinctively and just like, oh, I think that's interesting. Oh, I think that's interesting. And just buy it, right? Mm-hmm. Hence the Magpie collection. Like mm-hmm. the Magpie collection was a reference to the fact that like Magpies basically just collect the shiny things that attract their attention. Yeah. And I was kind of like that. And I continue to be kind of like that. Like I continue to buy things that are, that are just, that I'm just immediately drawn to. And that's it. Mm. Are you bothered if like, your interest like goes after two weeks um no i don't think there's anything to be bothered about so you don't like, like i think there's think a... you have to keep it for an x amount of time yeah i don't think so i don't think so okay. i mean why why put those arbitrary limits on yourself right yeah i think you outgrow everything sooner or later sometimes it takes an, a- an age to outgrow stuff but sometimes you outgrow relatively quickly talking about outgrowing you know you said like about how you wanted to be a grown-up and stuff i just wanted to mentioned to our listeners that clearly you haven't grown up that much because on this zoom call you know long long is called long long i'm called daniel <laughs> and you are called smarty pants mcfart right um, you actually took you the effort to role. change the name <laughs> to smarty pants mcfart so you know there's probably a lot of people listening to this um like episode that have seen your youtube stuff also Right. And uh-huh. you come across as very sensible and, you know, very proper <laughs> very and, and all this. Yeah, yeah very classy. Uh, guys, I will say to everybody as well on the, on the podcast, like Mark and us. Real are, life is not. Yeah, we're real friends, actually. So, <laughs> so he will do that and change his name to Smarty Pants McFart. Right? You know, so it's really just, good yeah. to show that, see that you clearly outgrown that young child in you. No, but oh, you yeah, know what of I was thinking? The stuff that Mark was saying about how he collects, right? Because he mm-hmm. is um, in the position he's in, so someone that's respected in terms of fashion, in terms of his taste and so on, no one will go to him and say, he's just like hoarding. No one will say that or think that or even assume that he's just guessing and he feels like getting this today. So he gets this and then the mm-hmm. next day it's that. But if it happens to someone else, like even including myself, um, they would feel like I think she's just lost because she hasn't found her taste yet, and it's just random. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying, but uh, like, if you think of it in a deep way, like I don't know if this is true or not, but you could say that Mark is constantly trying to find it, which is why he's constantly evolving. He's just still trying to find himself, so he's just a kid. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just a confused kid. There's a, I feel like there's a U2 song in here somewhere. <laughs> well, you know, when it comes to, like, I work with a lot of different people who have great tastes and very different tastes from each other, too. And, um, you know, taste in many ways is just being able to make these aesthetic decisions quite quickly, actually. Uh, like, my colleague, Michael Hill, who's the creative director over at Drake's, he has amazing taste and he puts colors together, you know, so effectively, but also so quickly, like it just comes so naturally to him. And obviously he has an inborn talent for it as well. But I think a lot of it was just years and years and years and years of like doing that over and over and over again, so that you just develop this sensitivity to it uh, mm. that 
that means that you can make these decisions quickly. You don't have to think about it that much. So maybe like 10 years ago, I might still pick what I'm picking today, but maybe it might take me much longer to reach those conclusions. Mm. Whereas now within like a couple minutes, I'll, I'll be like, yeah, that's right. Or no, that's not right. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I would agree. Or with maybe that. also just the fact that because you've seen a lot and your boundaries mm. have expanded, you have a much better sense of like what's really outstanding versus what's just like, okay, like pretty good. Because, you know, when you're new to collecting, when you're new to really like any field of anything, right? Everything looks pretty great. And it takes you a little while to realize like, what's really great and what's just pretending to be great. And also like which other brands had something similar, you know, but you just aren't aware of, right? Like, yeah, there's a lot of vintage oh, pieces man. that triple calendars, they're actually made by a lot of brands, you know, at the time. Yeah. yeah. But if you see one of them, you're like, wow, it's amazing. But you see more, it's like, oh, actually quite a few brands were making them, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. I'd give you, and this is to, not to knock this watch, by the way, but mm -hmm. Did you see the Lon the new Longines anniversary? Yeah. yeah. So it's surprisingly similar to a Naoyahida Type One, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know how the design process evolved. <laughs> to me, it is quite similar. And there was a gentleman who con uh, who commented on my IG seeing a photo of my Type One, be like, "Oh, you, your watch is amazing. Um, is it based on that Longines?" Uh, and he was a, obviously a new collector and so i said oh no it's not a it's not based on long jeans um actually this came out much earlier this came out in 2019 and you know when i look at that long jeans versus when i look at the type one i've had the type one for a long time and i know how hida-san's mind works and i can see how long jeans derive their piece out of or at least took some cues out of hida's piece mm -hmm. but i can also see like a lot of little aesthetic problems with it that i think if you weren't used to looking at this stuff a lot like you wouldn't necessarily pick up on mm. oh listen i mean the other thing is that the watch is like one eighth of the price of the hita so it's like you know yeah. definitely you should give some leeway for that sort of thing too yeah there's limitations right i can see i know exactly what you mean because i think when you look at both of them with the engraved um indexes in the season it that, i think looks quite similar right the engraved indices are probably the the most faithful um i don't i don't know if reproductions work word but the the longines numerals definitely look a lot like the hitas mm -hmm. um they're machine engraved not hand engraved so there's going to be a little bit of difference obviously from watch to watch with hitas whereas on all the longines will be the same um but the form of them is is beautiful on both so i will definitely not fault them for that in terms of the longines it's more a matter of proportions like yes. if you look closely the proportions of a lot of elements on that watch to me are like a little bit off mm. like they're a little bit uh, they're not quite dialed in yeah. in the same way that the Hida is because the Hida is very holistically it's it hangs together really well whereas the long jeans in parts is all fine but as a whole doesn't hang quite as well as the Hida does yeah I would completely agree with you like the Nahida the is just very precise like when I look at that piece, I think everything is done to precision. I know the case is like made in some like with like lasers and stuff. So it's like really super precise. Um, and with the Longines, I agree with you. The balance is just off, which affects the whole harmony of the watch, I think. Anyway. Yeah. Like when I did the, the Hita collab, the way we do collabs, me and Elliot, 
Elliot Hammers, like my 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 um, colleague, and we do all the watch collabs together. What we did was we took the existing HEDA and we kind of like visually dismantled it. So we took all of the elements out, and then we started trying to like reassemble them. Uh, because what we realized very quickly was that if you just touch one thing, the balance of the entire watch is off, right? Like you just move one thing or resize one thing or recolor one thing. And then all of a sudden the entire watch is, the, the design of the entire watch is broken. Mm -hmm. So you really have to understand like where Hito was coming from and then deconstruct it and then reconstruct it in a, in a new way. But it has to be done in its entirety. It cannot be done on a just one single element basis. Just going back to something you said previously in the episode, um, but I didn't have a chance to talk about it, which was uh, at the beginning of your watch journey, you were really collecting these things, um, you know, trying to be an adult um, and you were bargain hunting. You know, you weren't actually spending so much on it. Do you think it's still possible to collect that like that in, in, in where the way watches have developed, this hobby has developed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's so much... Um... I think there's still so much interesting stuff available for not as cheap as necessarily it was before, but still like very reasonable prices. And actually like Lung, you meant you touched on like the two watch collection. Mm -hmm. I think a two watch collection for someone who's getting started is a really good way to start because then you're really forced to think about your choices and, and educate yourself to make good choices. I think you can grow out of the two watch collection, but I think it's a great way to start collecting. Mm. Like it's a great mentality to start collecting with. But you know, um, in that interview you did with Watchbox, the thing that mm -hmm. you said that really like struck a chord with me was that you dress based on, so you dress first and then you go pick a watch. Whereas I go mm -hmm. pick a watch and then I dress around it, right? Mm -hmm. So in yeah. that sense, if you were to build a two watch collection, it would kind of be like, a girl buying her first bag, her first expensive bag, because you would definitely mm. look at your wardrobe and be like, let me buy a black one and a nude one or like shoes, mm. right? Mm. Um, yeah. So in that sense, I think it's easy. But if you looked at, I think a lot of people are like me. When they buy the watch, they don't think about the size and how it fits into everything they wear. So you end up mm. with a collection that's like, okay, I'm struggling today to find clothes that fit that watch. Mm, but yeah. most of the time even when i leave the house i'm like okay it feels a bit odd but then i'm too lazy to go, to go back in to change so <laughs> just leave but after watching that interview and what you said i realized okay if i were to curate and recollect again and do everything again i would definitely think differently i'll really look at what kind of clothes i wear and then change everything to fit that mm. yeah so I'm going that's... more along like what you wear and then pick the watch after. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Because the watch says a lot, but it does occupy a very small like real estate on your body. Mm -hmm. So it's very, mm. you know, and it, it does have to uh, flow. And I, I think you just gravitate, well, I gravitate to more pieces, pieces that are more flexible. Mm -hmm. um, mm. There's obviously that other way of collecting where people, they don't really care what they wear and they want the watch to speak volumes of everything, right? Mm -hmm. they, they, yeah. Everything is just concentrated in that watch. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But yeah, I tried kind of that and it just didn't really sit well with me. So I prefer to dress better, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, everyone's going to have their own personal take on it. You know, like I, I definitely don't, I definitely don't want to come off as like my way is the right way. Um, but it is the way that, that suits me the best. And I think that it, it can suit a lot of people well too. Like I, as I mentioned in that Watchbox interview too, like I have a lot of respect for people who just, they love their watches so much that they want everything else to revolve mm -hmm. around that. I think that's great too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Something you also mentioned, which was, you know, as your career progressed um, and you became more financially, I don't know, I don't know accessible <laughs> for some of some grails, right? What, what were those grails you went for at the time? Um... And that you've let go now in the 60, 60 piece. Oh, yeah. Well, probably the first one, I think the first one was probably the, the 3800, the Nautilus 3800. Uh, in fact, it's funny. I, I originally wanted to buy a 3800, and then I actually ended up with a 3700. Mm. which mm -hmm. was probably a good move too. Uh, ba based on the advice of some people, they're like, stop looking at the 800, go get 3700, that's the real deal. So I'm like, all right, fine. So I finally got it. And then I realized that I never wore it. Mm -hmm. A, because it was a little bit too big. And B, because I always felt like it was a little too valuable. Mm -hmm. And I'd gotten it for pretty cheap because I'd gotten this like so long ago. And so I sold them. Like I had, I had two 3700s, sold both and just kept putting that money into new things and new things and new things. Mm -hmm. And by the time I did get into 3,800, I was like, man, these are great. And I had a whole bunch of 3,800 that I've let go of over the years. And now I'm basically letting go of the very last, but in my opinion, the very best one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you um, also mentioned that you had a 5,004 and I was like, huh? I had no Oh, idea. no, no, 3,940. Oh, 39. No, I've never owned a 5004. Okay. And then you had to, th and you obviously have the 3970 as well. Okay. And I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, these are, you're not going to let these go or? Uh, 3940, I'm letting go of. Mm. Um, 3970, I really wanted to have one Patek Perpetual mm -hmm. in the collection. And uh, actually, I have the white dial 3970. It's the one that for some reason, people don't seem to gravitate towards but i actually think it's the best looking of all mm -hmm. the kind of standard production 3970s and then i realized i think i like it best i love the 3970 white dial and i think it's because i saw a photo of eric clapton's one like eric clapton had a white dial 3970 as well i think yeah platinum with this with the rectangular markers and the pointed markers mm -hmm. i was like wow that thing's so good looking and uh i love it. it sits really well with me uh i also have a 1526 like the really really early patek yeah. perpetual calendar yeah. that's with restoration mm -hmm. so i think when that comes back um i'll have another think about it and i'm only going to keep one of the two either 3970 or that 1526 Oof, we'll that's, that's a tough one yeah that's really <laughs> that is a tough decision yeah that's i really i think it's one of those things though that like i should force myself to just make a choice like even if you chuck chuck the thirty nine forty in, I know a lot of people would just yeah say thirty nine forty that can go, but it's still a great looking piece. Yeah, but you know what? You can get that same kind of dial layout with lots of watches, but fifteen twenty six, yeah, that kind of layout. It's hard to find yeah. another brand that can do something like that. Yeah, and especially at that size too. If yeah. you like a small size in that layout, there's that's not really many choices. 
it's really interesting how like now i look at small watches right the smaller they are it actually grabs your attention more than let's say a bigger watch because mm. it's just you don't see it that a man like i don't know confident enough to to wear it yeah yeah fifteen twenty six as I well Jeez, so like nice. I always it's... think smaller watches are more are actually more attention grabbing um, mm. because you, you kind of have to like look a little bit more closely to, to see it properly, you know, mm. whereas like when it's big, it's kind of like, oh, it's always there. I'm just going to you end up ignoring it as a result. Mm. And something like 1526, you have like that whole vintage thing going on, you know, like mm. it's so charming. Uh, it's it's a killer piece that one. Every time I see yeah. it in the catalog, I do just stop and look at the photo. It's just beautiful. <laughs> it is. It's a beautiful watch. It's got such great history. You know, it's the first of Patek's serially yeah. produced perpetual calendars, and um, mine is actually not in great condition. My my case is pretty polished, uh, but I got it for really cheap. And so the nice thing is that well, I can wear it around and not not worry about it. I'm really yeah. excited to see how this restoration turns out. Hmm. So, like, is, how, when you go for restoration, where do you send that to? I always do it in London, actually. Hmm. Like, I always feel like, oh, I should work directly with the salon. So I happen to be in London pretty often. And so I did my restoration in London. They're super nice. I, I really enjoy the experience. Hmm. It's, it's also a special piece yeah. in that. It's quite, it's not that common. It's like, when you look at the production numbers, it's not that high. It's quite low, actually. But yeah, it's a couple very, hundred, I think. Yeah. You're very confident, exactly. right? Since you did the 96 there. You call it travel. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah. do you ever, do you, um, do they give you a quotation like before yes. you leave? Okay. Not before you leave. So they take it away and they give you, they take about a week or two to do the analysis and then they'll give you the quotation. And honestly, it's, it's not, it's nothing crazy. Okay. I think they're charging me like 2,800 pounds. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I think I paid two grand last time I did a full service on my 3940. Mm -hmm. So like 2,800 pounds for a restoration on such an old thing, I yeah. think is, is yeah. very reasonable. Yeah. I guess that's like one of the things that holds a 3940 back is the production time. It was, you know, it's just made for so long. Right. And I think mm. with that kind of piece, it, it's a great looking piece, but if you, as a collector, there are some dial configurations that, okay, yeah, if I was going to get one, it'd have to be like a, a specific kind of dial. And to some extent, the 3970 also has that, you know, there's some specific like Breguet dials and ones with tachymeter, even one, ones with like a 5004 dial, yeah. right? where I think it, it's, it was made in quite a large production. So you feel I want to get a special one of it. Yeah. So yeah. I think, yeah. Right. Um, I guess I want to move on to talking about, you know, because you are going to be auctioning off at the end of the month, which is the 30th. Mm -hmm. And how long is it going on for this uh, online auction for Mark? I'm excited because um, the format of this is kind of interesting. So it's an online auction uh, that's going to run for a week. So it runs from November 30th to December 6th. And I'm actually converting uh, the Petter, my Petter building store into basically the auction preview site. So for the entire week, you can come to the Petter Building Store and we'll have everything available for you to see, uh, which as far as I know, hasn't really been done. Mm -hmm. Like normally, even prior to an auction, you might only run the preview for a couple of days and then the auction mm -hmm. happens. Whereas like this is like a full week and you can come in every single day and look at that thing you're interested in over and over and over again uh, until the auction expires. 
Uh, are you going to be there in that week? Are you going to mm -hmm. be like, yeah, okay. Yeah, definitely. I'm really excited to just like come and meet people and, and actually, um, oh, I guess I can, I guess I can reveal it now. Actually, no, no, no. I'm going to, I'm, there's a little oh, surprise. There's a little surprise. Yeah. There's a little surprise. There's a little surprise that I will reveal on the 30th. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. I'll be there. There's nothing to buy. It's just a little thank you from me to like, Whoever wins these pieces. Is it like a right. signed autograph photo of Mark? Yes. How did you guess? No, it's actually a bobblehead. It's actually a it's a bobblehead of me. And you can put a watch right. on it. So wind the watch as my head bobs. So so for everyone listening, like I'm actually gonna be in Hong Kong too from um yeah, I'll give the dates actually. From the twenty first to the thirtieth. So It'd be great to see any of you guys that listen to the podcast come around to the preview and maybe at the auction and it'll be great to see you guys. Mm. Um, I actually asked Long Long, you know, are you going to be there? She was like, no, I want to go on a holiday, but she's quite <laughs> willing to stay until the 30th to pick up Mark's little like thing that she doesn't even yeah, know what it is. So it's great to know priorities. <laughs> yeah, priorities. Yeah, I know where I like. Well, hold on. You have to win a, you have to win a watch at auction before you get yeah. the little surprise. It's not some free for all where you just show up and get free stuff. So, um, how do you see the market right now? Uh, the auction market and what well, just generally the watch market? Market's pretty interesting. Um, I mean, everyone's kind of like, oh, the sky's falling, but I don't think that's true. I think a lot of the hype watches that really hit incredible peaks last year and earlier this year, you know, those are those have lost a lot of steam. But when you compare values to even just like two years ago, they're still significantly up. Um, I think that there's been a huge withdrawal of Chinese uh, Chinese bidders, which, you know, given the economy and the situation in China right now is understandable. Um, but true collectors are still there, right? True collectors are still there. They're still looking for great stuff. And uh, if anything, I think that the next 10 years is, is super exciting because there's been so many new entrants into the collecting world. Uh, and obviously a lot of them cut their teeth on say like sport watches, tool watches, cause that's kind of the zeitgeist right now. But 10 years from now, I'd love to see what they develop into, like where their tastes go, because they're the ones who are gonna really define the market. I mean, they have to, right? There's just so many of them. Mm. Yeah, I, the I same way that like that, yeah. Like you think about the auction market back in the 90s, right? And the sort of pocket mm. watches that used to mm. be on sale and the numbers they used to get, like that generation that used to buy that type of watch is has kind of faded away a little bit. And now it's time for a new generation to step up. Mm. If we talk about like tastemakers and kind of, I know like I, I represent Philips, so it's probably going to be taken with a bit of salt. But when I look at what Aurel Bax has done, you know, when he took over and like did Philips Bax and Rousseau and basically morphed this watch collecting thing instead of being a completely geeky underground thing. And like you say, pocket watch thing, it turned into like a lifestyle. It turned into like a how, you know, to have the vision to see what it could be and, you know, how it fits into people's lifestyle and and the collecting philosophy, how it could be with like art or something like that. I just got to give him a lot of credit because you know, there are other auction houses now that have seen what Aurel has done and really uh, attack that space right now, mm. you know, really aggressively trying to expand because they see, oh, this is the potentials here. So, yeah, 
absolutely I have to give him a lot of credit for that so, absolutely um, i mean i have a great deal of respect for orel like he really like you said he had the vision you know um but you know having vision what are you into these days what can you see you know doing well I, i'm personally before you answer a big fan and a uh, bit resentful actually of your christian claims oh <laughs> um well hon so you're asking what is what in general in the market's going to do well or what in my collection is going to do well or um i'm looking i'm asking case basically like what are you looking into these days what are you predicting what will may you know take fire or become popular or it may not be it just might be just take the question is what are you looking into oh man i i don't know if i can really comment on um the general like i don't know if i can comment on the taste of the market and where that's going to go i don't think i'm that close to it um i know what i'm looking at i'm looking at these days uh a lot of ladies watches um because there are a lot of ladies watches that should have been unisex watches that have been marketed as ladies watches i think there's a lot of interesting stuff in that space um i'm looking at frank Mueller's and curvex cases i think there's a lot of value there and i just think that case is really beautiful um, it's a little bit of a shame, like where the brand has gone, but I think it's coming back a little bit, which is nice. Um, I'm also really interested in minute repeaters. Like I would love to own a minute repeater one day. Uh, and it's been it's been quite hard to find one that's both in my price range and is also interesting, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like interesting to me personally. Like, for instance, I, I actually really like that IWC Portuguese minute repeater. It's very affordable. I mean, they go for like 40, 50 K, mm -hmm. but you know, they're, they're big old things. Yeah. So I, I don't think I could ever wear that on a regular basis. Um, I think some of the Breguet mini repeaters are, they do make some small ones that, that are beautiful. They don't come up that often. So I haven't had a chance to look at them too closely. Uh, you know, the funny thing about mini repeaters is that when they're too small, the sound is also a little too small. Mm -hmm. So like I did a video with Thomas a couple, I think two years ago, a year or two ago. Um, it was a John Schaefer case. Star Wheel. I don't know. I did this with um, Sam Hines. Sorry, not not Thomas, but Sam Hines. Um, it was a Star Wheel John Schaefer case, 34 millimeter platinum repeater, and the look of it was beautiful. Mm. And the sound was like the 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 tone of the sound was nice, but the volume of it was a little underwhelming. And it's like, what do you expect, right? It's like a tiny little thing put into this really beautiful but quite hefty, heavy case. So of course the the sound is going to be a little bit a little bit on the soft side. Mm -hmm. um my the thing i really want to see and i've yet to actually see one in person in the metal mm -hmm. is uh the patek 7000 so the patek yeah. 7000 that's like a 34 millimeter ladies repeater uh and it's supposedly got one of the best sounds of any patek repeater in the last couple of decades mm -hmm. i'd love to see one of those i don't know if i can ever afford one but i'd love to see one of those right well that brings us like close to the fin finish off this uh, main interview but there's a few things i want to mention before we go on to the next round uh the first of which is you recently did a collab with uh, the horological society of new york like oh yeah who designed that tote because i i freaking love that tote yeah like it was enough for me to think okay do i have to upgrade my membership or can i just yeah, do a sneaky message to to mark <laughs> no mark will not let you bend the rules not my toad anyway it's like it's their toad like what am i gonna do i can't just I can't just slip one out the back door for you no well, i'll talk up. to nick 
I'll talk to Nick. Fine, you talk to Nick. <laughs> nah, to nah, nah, nah. I promise he won't. He won't let you bend the rules either. He's yeah, I know. I know he won't. Yeah, I know he won't. For a good like, cause. Yeah, it is because all that cause. money is basically for all that money is basically for scholarships for young young aspiring watchmakers. You know, so it's a good cause. Um, that tote is uh, something I designed. Um, the shape and form of it is based on an old design that we'd done, and I just upgraded it a little bit. And then I got this young illustrator to redraw the Horological Society logo because I thought, you know, it's a tote, like it should be something that's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. And so she made like this hand-drawn, slightly off-kilter version of the original Horological Society of New York um, logo. And that's how that came about. Okay. Um, mm. Talking about bags, actually, I've got a question for you. This is just like literally just popped into my head, which is... Mm -hmm. You know, I go and see clients now, right? And then sometimes I think, if I just take a briefcase, it's a bit too formal. Yeah, mm. but if I take like a tote, it's not exactly wholly suitable with what I'm wearing. Just not mm. maybe that suitable, right? But actually, I quite like the idea of how flexible the tote is. So in mm, that kind yeah. of situation, yeah, what bag do you think is... Yeah, I'm trying. I'm struggling to find a bag like that fits what I need it. That image, not not the use of it, because most bags I can put whatever I need in. But yeah, it's the it's the look of it that goes with what I'm wearing. Um, I quite like um portfolio cases. Okay, you know, just like sort of A4, a little bit larger than A4 sort of size, uh, and then you can fit a watch roll inside. Or uh, honestly, because I'm such a cheap ass. I use, um, in my portfolio, I use print boxes. So you can buy them on Amazon or eBay or even just a stationery store, right? They're just like hard-sided plastic cases that you put photographic prints in and they're quite resilient. So you can knock them about and they won't, they won't deform. Uh, and then you just blind that and you put your watches in it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a very like low budget but secure way of... of keeping and moving these things around i mean you know, I, I have a similar be... philosophy for for yeah. for cigars too like i don't really use humidors because i'm terrible at upkeep for humidors so i just use tupperware boxes i use tupperware boxes with a boveda pack and they last forever and you'll never deform a cigar because tupperware boxes are hard you know yeah 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 the thing with the a4 portfolio i find them like too flat so mm. you like have to if you want if you and you don't want to like uh, ruin the profile of that portfolio by stuck in something that is like has a bulge you know mm, yeah so well, there's some portfolios yeah. that have thickness to them too you know so it's the sort of thing that you carry under your arm but it has enough thickness that like it'll it'll hold stuff properly without without looking like it's misshapen yeah i'll, I'll look into that yeah the idea of a, uh, like a portfolio i've seen people i think it looks it's a good look yeah yeah but... check out the the frank clegg ones are really good um okay. i really like the frank, frank clegg ones and they're easily available and they're available on our online store <laughs> a little plug there nice little plug, little plug. right uh, i can see where the smarty in your name smarty pants mcfart comes from so smart there mark smooth right just be glad i haven't fulfilled the uh the promise of the of the last part of that name yet <laughs> right the next thing that i wanted to mention was your wrist size survey so hmm. tell us like this is i think the second time you've done it what brought it along the first time why did you do it the second time and how did it go um, first time I did it was intellectual curiosity. It continues to be a curiosity for me. 
it's it's a market research survey, really. Um, I'm just curious to see how people are thinking about watches. Uh, it was inspired by the fact that I was having all these conversations in the store about watches and I would just consistently hear people say, oh, I have really small wrists, you know, mm -hmm. and typically when you talk to men about anything, they never say, oh, I have a very small anything. Uh, so I was like, oh, this is a bit weird. Like 80% of the people I'm talking to are saying they have small wrists. So I made this survey where the first question was, do you, is your wrist small, average or large? And then the next question was an actual measurement of the wrist. And then there were some questions about like, what size of watch do you like? And I, I don't want to reveal too much because I'd rather people take the survey. Um, but, you know, I, I do try to do kind of a wrap up of the survey every time a session of it ends. So I, I'm trying to do it every year, run it for a certain amount of time and then do the analysis and, and present results. And I'm hoping that if I can accumulate data every year, I can also kind of see how people are thinking about their watches and how that thinking changes over the years as well. Okay. So... I understand you don't want to reveal too much, but can you reveal what the first time you did it said? Okay, it'll it'll ruin the survey a little bit. So pretend like you didn't hear this if you if you do do the survey. So um, as expected, like I think it was when I ran the survey first time, and it ran for from twenty eighteen to two thousand, and I got like two thousand something results um, without really pushing it too hard. Uh, it was like 55% of people said they had small wrists and then 40% was like, I have an average wrist and then like 8% or 5% or something like that said they had large wrists, um, which, you know, is, is sort of absurd. Like, cause you're talking about this biological factor that should fit a bell curve. You know, if you look at the height of people, right? Like there's a lot of people mm. of average height and there's some people of, of sh who are short in stature and some people are tall in stature. Mm. Uh, and the thing is like when I actually got people to measure their wrists, that was a perfect bell curve. And it was just the perception was not a perfect bell curve. Um, and then also I identified like what people really were looking for. And there's still a surprising number of people looking for watches in the 34 to 36 millimeter size. 38 is definitely like a, the, the comfortable average mm. that if you were to average all the results, you would land on. But actually, there's a lot of people in that 36 millimeter size. And what's amazing to me is that Patek doesn't even make a 36 millimeter anymore. Neither does Omega. Uh, like nobody really makes that size anymore. Yet so many people want it. I think uh, is the Rolex date just 36? They, yeah. have, they, mm -hmm. they have a 41, right? They have a 36. And I think the thing just in Rolex is like the best seller, isn't it? Like Rolex is the last major manufacturer that still makes a 36 millimeter size. But it doesn't wear like a 36, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, because mm. I'm looking at the Wimbledon now, right? And mm -hmm. uh, in Japan, I went to try to 36 and it wears like a 37, 38. Mm. Yeah. But, the modern ones definitely wear a little bit larger too. You're absolutely right. Yeah. But you know what I was thinking is, are men really conscious about their wrist size? Kind of like their um, calves, <laughs> like chicken legs, right? Because mm -hmm. if you asked a woman, like, hey, like if I asked myself, am I plus size or am I average or whatever? In your mind, you will always be like, oh, I'm fat. Like I'm plus size. But the actual number on your clothing is still very low. And mm. so I wonder if guys all look at their wrists and think, oh, I have skinny wrists. 
but actually it's just average. So you've, you've touched on an important point and the point that I didn't really want to reveal, but oh well. Um, I, think that, I think that what's happening is that uh, this is an example of a psychological effect called the substitution effect. So the substitution effect is where you don't, where when you're presented with a question, they cannot easily answer, you substitute it for something that is simpler, that should give you approximately the right answer, right? Mm. So if I was to say like, oh, will Joe Biden win the election next year? I don't really think about the entire career of Joe Biden, the geopolitical factors that might affect whether he'll win the election in 2024. I just think about like how happy or sad I am about him today. You know, and I, I really overweight like factors uh, within the last week because that's what's at the top of my mind. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, um, when it comes to what is the average risk size, people have no idea. I mean, I don't have any idea either because wrists half the time are covered by shirt cuffs. So you can't even physically see them. And they're not an easy thing to eyeball either. So people are substituting something there. And I think what they're substituting is they're going to the marketplace, seeing what's available in the watch marketplace and being, and then putting it on and being like, oh, that feels a little big. Mm -hmm. And rather than saying, oh, this is a little bit big, they're saying, oh, I must be a little bit small. Yeah. Mm. Next slide. Uh, I, I, yeah, I was just kind of think about that as well, because you just said that a lot of watch manufacturers aren't manufacturing 36, right? They are manufacturing, well, not 36. So, yeah. but then there is potentially a market for 36. And which means there's that the, the the watches that are being supplied are probably skewed towards the larger size, which means that mm -hmm. most of us, when we go and try a watch, we're going to be undersized, mm -hmm. not because we're yeah. undersized, because the product offering is our larger, right? And so yeah. we're not going to blame the product. We're going to say we've got small risks. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, um, last question. Um, I wanted to mention drop 93 seems like mm. uh you've moved location and it's yeah. a very much here to stay like concept because at the beginning it was somewhere in a warehouse or something but i think yeah. you know my idea was that you were trialing that idea uh, you know i assume that that business is doing well and you know is that true and what's yeah your plan it's been for going it? really well it's been going really well um i'd like to do more and because you know it's it's partly armory old stock but it's partly um, consignment clothing, like basically old bespoke from our clients and they've outgrown it or wasn't suitable for them in some way. Uh, I would love to do more in that space, you know, because I, I love tailored clothing and the nice thing about tailored clothing is it's very easy to alter. So you, you can actually bend a lot of bespoke clothing for someone else to fit you as well. And, you know, it takes a lot of time and effort to make a good garment and I don't want to see them go to waste. I'd like to see them go to, <clears throat> new owners who appreciate them. I mean, just like with watches, right? It's like, okay, this watch might not be right for me, but it's still a lovely piece of work. And it would be great to for it to land in the hands of someone who really loves it and appreciates it and gets to wear it all the time. What's the general consensus that people have with pre-owned clothing in Hong Kong? I think they're more and more open to it. Um, I think the problem was before when we used to do it out of our warehouse and a lot of it was online, mm -hmm. it was just, it was hard to 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 pull the trigger without actually seeing the garment, try it on and, and get a real sense for it. You know, I mean, selling clothes online is, is tough. You know, a lot of people really have to buy things as a certain leap of faith because mm -hmm. they're not able to try it on and the fabric might turn out a little bit differently than expected. And 
on their body, it might hang differently than they expected. But at least like, I mean, come to a physical store because we moved our physical store to China, to Central. So it's like really easy to just show up at the shop and try stuff on. Like, I, I think once they get to try it on, they're like, oh, okay, you know what? Like, this is cool. Like, I want I want this. And surprisingly, a lot of pre-owned clothing is very, very, very lightly used. Because it's the sort of thing where someone might wear it once or twice and then be like, oh, you know what? It's not quite right for me. And they just shove it in the closet and that's it. Mm-mm-mm. Such a good idea. I hope it takes off more and like mm-hmm. more vintage stores open. And yeah. You, yeah, you mentioned it's, something it's... there about like mm-hmm. bespoke clothing, Mark, how it's easier mm-hmm. to um, adjust and tailor to someone else. Is that not the case with like other like stuff you get? Yeah. Um, with bespoke clothing, there's a lot of allowance in the seams. So, you know, you can let out or take in uh, a pretty, you can go up and down basically about a size, maybe even a size and a half. Uh, Whereas a lot of ready-to-wear clothing is not designed with that seam allowance, so you can't really do that. Um, Yeah, that's one of the main factors. Okay. Well, best of luck with that. Um, Thank you. We now move on to the pump push around. Okay. And most of these are not, well, actually, some of them are still watch-related, but I tried my best. Right. Number one, what's the most important accessory aside from a watch that a man should get right? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um, That's easy. Is it? That's easy. Yeah, like, <laughs> but what, what, what are you going to say? Because huh? it like spectacles. What did you say? Spectacles. Yeah, that's like, funny. I was thinking that, too. Because it really, really oh, is like how someone looks. Yeah. Yeah. Because you always look at someone's mm. face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, actually, that's a way better answer than I was going to give. I was going to give this woolly, wishy-washy answer like, where I was going to say, like, no, I was going to say no single item is that important. Like, you got to consider everything as a whole. That would be a very Mark Show answer, I have but to what say. What if the underwear <laughs> cutting is wrong and then it, like, cuts into your thighs and there's, like, lines in your pants? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the stuffed sausage effect is, is yeah. not a good look. Yeah. Actually, talking about underwear, though, like... <laughs> Uh, I was looking at underwear and yeah. I don't think there's a huge selection of underwear for a guy. Not a, Well, okay. Did you like, know you can actually have your underwear made for you? What? By who? By Mark. So most, by Mark, of course. No, actually, yeah, I don't weird. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I, don't, I don't offer the service, but um, yeah, most yeah. good shirt be measured maker. up by you for sure. <laughs> no we had too many we had too many legal cases about that we can, we don't do that anymore um most good shirt makers will also make good boxer shorts actually so like ascot chang does make boxer shorts and uh, they'll be made of shirting cloth and you can make them out of very very fine shirting cloth and they're really comfortable to wear um so if you ever need to make custom boxers like talk to your shirt maker they can probably do it a lot of them don't even bother to offer it, but it is actually quite a quite a good old school option. Um, I actually just buy Muji underwear. I quite like Muji underwear. It's cheap and cheerful. You know, uh, I, you know, at the beginning of the year when I went to Switzerland, I forgot to bring um, underwear. extra underwear. underwear. Oh, yeah, so I had to go and buy underwear. And you know, Switzerland actually is home of two really really good underwear manufacturers, Hanro, H-A-N-R-O, yes. and Zimmerli, yeah. Z-I-M-M-E-R-L-I. Yeah. Okay. And I've never bought their underwear before because I was like, bloody hell, this is so expensive. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm in Switzerland. I'm not here very often. I'm going to splurge on underwear. So I spent like 400 US dollars on underwear. <laughs> and 
and I'm wearing a pair today, funnily enough. And I'm like, man, this is really good underwear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm. That's what. That's why I think there is like quote unquote like a space there because you want it comfortable. Like when you try a comfortable pair of underwear, you're like, oh, that that fit. That, that. You, you're in it all day, and you think, oh, it's yeah. great. And then, yeah. but also as a guy. You think, and this is probably similar to a woman. I don't know. You have to tell me long. Yeah. But when you're getting, when you feel like you want some nighttime action, yeah, right, and you strip down, you kind of want to look good in your underwear, don't you? You, you want that underwear to look good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Suggestive yeah, so, in all the right ways. No, but yeah, I, exactly. You know, I was thinking when Mark said the shirt maker can make your boxers, right? Yeah. Imagine your boxers match your shirt, so it's like a pink flowery shirt. But when you take off your pants, no <laughs> <it all> matches. <laughs> So no, I was just thinking. I was thinking, what if you had like a flowery shirt, right? And then your boxes were like soil, so it looked like the flowers <laughs> oh coming, out, coming out of your boxes. <laughs> would you? Would you still be in the mood? Would you think that guy is so collected? That guy is so detailed, or would it be like, I can't stop laughing at this guy? <laughs> oh man, I I cannot comment on that. I I haven't been there. I'll worse. just say that I think because I looked at this right I really looked at, I tried to find the right brand even when I see the brand on top of the so I'm not really a boxer guy I like briefs and um boxer briefs and the yeah. way they print the bit at the top of the elast elastane part right elastic part yeah I don't think it looks that good mm-hmm. yeah I looked at Hanro and I like things which is which are a bit like close to skin not skin tight but I mean like just quite because I don't want it to like affect what i'm wearing on the outside as well so like it sounds like i'm like being a that was a that was a shadow flex right there <laughs> i was like just thinking it you know i can't be the only guy because it's not like i'm an underwear guy yeah i'm not but it's just something that i think it's the same for girls and guys right if you want to look good in your clothes the underwear is ugly the underwear and bra is un- ugly and then if you if you only focus on the underwear and bra the because of the texture and the cut and everything it's not going to look good i think what do you mean by that okay so at least for women if you even look at celebrities and what they wear when they look really good and stuff that's skin tight the underwear and bras like a nude grandma uh super ugly cutting bra and underwear like high-waisted underwear or stuff that looks like it's actually just like a uniqlo muji kind of uh, seamless underwear and bra because you need mm. it to look like your skin so it doesn't look good mm. and then you mm. have a separate category that's just like okay very nice lingerie mm. yeah. but I don't think guys even have that subset of really nice lingerie that's what I'm saying like come date night yeah, yeah they don't have that option and well you know <laughs> you could but then yeah because I look I really looked into this you can really tell yeah I looked at like Ronaldo and Bjorn Borg but then who wants to like strip down and you, your name's like Ronaldo there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or be Borg, right? Okay. Nobody wants to be like okay, that. Can I just say it's the same for girls as it is for guys, right? If you're good looking, I mean, if the girl's good looking, you're not going to be like, oh my God, she's wearing like Muji underwear. You're not going to think like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, if you're like me, right, the underwear are off straight away. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. All right. Okay. Anyway, we spent a lot of time on that. That's a good laugh. All right. Number <laughs> two. Uh, Mark, do you wear black shoes more or brown shoes more? 
No, it's a really no, valid question. Say something in in Tokyo. I was picking up Mark to go for cigars, and then he had to go upstairs because he wore one brown shoe, and one black shoe. <laughs> yeah, I was dressing in the dark, and it didn't work out so well. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, I wear. I probably wear more brown shoes, but I quite like my. Black shoes. In fact, I probably like my black shoes more than I ever have.、Um, maybe because I'm just getting a little tired of brown shoes, but also because there's <clears throat> there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting textures you can get that make black much more interesting.、Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't really wear very much just plain black calf, but I do wear a lot of black grain.、Mm-hmm. Um, I think black grain is a really good look, and it goes with a lot of stuff too. Like I like a lot of olives, and black and olives sit really well together. In some ways, like better than black and brown.、Mm, okay, there's a little、I'm、more contrast that. that way. Yeah, yeah when you come to the store, I actually have some black grains I can show you. Okay, I do a lot of it as like special order for people too. Or otherwise, the other thing that I love is、um, black Chelsea boots.、Mm. I think there's something so kind of sharp and so sort of evocative of like. Old French style black Chelsea boots. I, I'm really into it. But yeah, I, I, I'm on the fence with the、uh, Chelsea boots. Not because I don't think they look good, because I think of how they look on me, right? Because I'm、mm. like five foot seven, five foot eight in between, right? And then,、mm, yeah, my foot though is a size forty two, forty three sometimes. So I think it's so clean that there's no break in the line. It can make my foot、mm. look way too big.、Mm, yeah. Well, Chelsea boots are a little bit of a tough one,、um, especially actually for people with kind of flatter feet or slightly fallen arches, because it can look a little blobby around the ankle. So unless your arch is relatively high and it's sort of pushing that midsection of the Chelsea boot up, it can make your foot look fatter. But you know there are also Chelsea boot lasts that are just a little bit lower than normal,、uh, and they they do look a lot better. It's something I've worked on in the past. That's why I know about this. I can show you that at the store too.、Cool. Yeah, yeah, do that because I've got flat feet, like super、mm. flat. I have、yeah. no arch, you know. Yeah, flat feet and but... Chelsea boots are are a are a tough mix, but there are ways around it. Yeah,、so、or you I, can I, even I just put an orthotic in there. Yeah, or I just、uh, just don't go for them, and I go for like a、uh, the dress boot, you know, which breaks、mm. up the line slightly a bit more. But they're not dress as boots are、wide. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I love dress boots, but for me, dress boots—it's—it's it's a lot of lacing and it's a lot of effort、mm. to get it on and off.、Mm. Oh. Mm. Right. Next question: What's your sartorial pet peeve? Um, pet peeve—that one's actually pretty easy. In fact, there's a bunch, but、um, the first one would be jacket sleeves are a little too long.、Mm. Uh. Like when I see guys wearing jackets with jacket sleeves a little bit too long, I always think, oh, it's a bit of a waste, you know, because a jacket sleeve is one of the easiest things to alter to be shorter, and it really makes a huge difference on、um, the visual proportions of the jacket. Because if you imagine like the sleeves are too long,、uh, first it makes your arms look really long or really short if it's really really over overly long, and secondly, it it changes the way you perceive the jacket. So the jacket might even look like a little bit too short, or might look like someone else's jacket, 
like I advise everyone to have a close look at their jacket sleeve length and then just make sure that, you know, it's sitting above the wrist and it's showing like a centimeter, two centimeters of shirt cuff. And in fact, there's a really easy shortcut that a lot of people don't seem to be aware of, which is rather than measuring the, the length of the entire sleeve, uh, what's better to do is you, you measure from the tip of your thumb to the tip of the jacket sleeve, because then you'll always have like this consistent measurement to go by when you're altering jackets. So like, for instance, uh... I know I always want to show 14 centimeters from the tip of my thumb to the tip of my jacket. And this is going to depend. This is going to vary from person to person because you have different size hands and thumbs yeah. and whatnot. But like that is a really good benchmark to follow. This is more accurate, right? Because the distance is less. So there's less variation. Is that what it is? Yeah, because actually visually what people are seeing is like how much of the oh, hand is showing, yeah, right? Yeah, and so yeah. you just want to make sure that's consistent. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. Next one. People that inspire your sense of dress. Um, that's a tougher one. I don't really, you know, I, I think that when you first get started trying to figure out how you want to dress... It's good to have a few people that are like, oh, I really like his style. I'm going to try and copy it a little bit. But at some point, you got to move on and just go do your own thing. Um, if anything, I'm probably just more inspired by people who you can tell, like, love to dress. And I think that, you know, as with anything, right, like being able to see someone's passion is, is a wonderful thing. Mm, yeah. Right. Next question, Mark. What is your favorite gadget of all time? Favorite gadget of all time. Um, that Ricoh GR camera, I really do love it. I think it's a great camera and I, I don't see any reason to like switch out from it. Um, I also really like my lighter. I like lighters in general. And there's this little Xeno lighter uh, that's like nice and thin, but you know, we'll go, it'll, it'll light 20, 30 cigars before you have to refill it. Uh, I have no idea what the model name is. And they make just a plain aluminum body one of it. I'm really into that. Carry around with me a lot. Okay. Right. On the last three now, uh, your most memorable watch collector or watch meet or even watch experience. Oh, that's tough. Uh, most memorable watch collector meet. Aside from myself, obviously, <laughs> come on. You know what? I think the the most fun, enjoyable, educational experience when it comes to watch collecting was when I met um, Toru Kamine, the proprietor of Kamine Watches in Kobe. So this gentleman, I, I actually did a YouTube interview with this guy, and he's amazing. Um, Kamine is this is one of the oldest watch shops in Japan. I think it's a it's 116 or 117 years old. Kamine-san is the fourth generation owner of it. And, you know, I mean, you always worry about family-owned businesses like declining because the future generations just aren't as sharp as the founders were. But he's like the total opposite of that. He's amazing, passionate about watches, passionate about taking care of customers, passionate about retail. And uh, he's just seen and he knows so much. So it's like such a pleasure to talk to him. When I was showing him the collaboration watches we did, like it was amazing because I didn't really have to explain anything. Like he just understood all the cues and like all the kind of design visions of the watch without me giving him any sort of prompting. And I was like, 
oh my God, this is so wonderful. Like this guy really gets it. You know, he really understands these things at, at this very deep level. And when I was, when I did a video about his own personal collection, his own personal collection too is amazing and really beautifully curated. And it's all like slightly off the beaten track stuff, not like weird stuff, but stuff that is, that has flown under the radar a little bit. Uh, and what's amazing also is the way he collected it. So Kamiya-san as a proprietor of a watch shop, his philosophy is that you should never keep the best stuff for yourself. You got to make sure it gets sold to your good clients. But if you really love a watch, right, you can call that client back up and buy it back from him at a premium. So he, all of his watches are actually things that he bought back from clients. But how, how do you spell his name so that people, if they go searching on YouTube, can find it? Like Kamine? Mm, Kamine. Uh, K-A-M-I-N-E. Okay. So, well, I And he's it. got a chain of, he never expanded beyond Kobe. And he's basically like the king of watches in the Kansai region. Uh, he's got like six or seven Kamine shops all in Kobe. Oh. And they cover almost all the major brands, um, including like a lot of the independents. Uh, he was actually personally responsible for selling almost 30 Philippe Dufours. Like he's oh. so influential and he's such a fixture and a legend in the Japanese watch industry. Wow. Okay. Okay. Next one. Uh, a good book you've read recently. Um, a couple of good things I read recently. I mean, I've, I'm a big fan of Danny Kahneman. Um, Thinking Fast and Slow is something I come back to every year. And I just read his latest book called Noise. Uh, so noise is is about inconsistency in decision making and what causes it and how you can ameliorate that. And then the other one is uh, David W. Marks' latest book, Status and Culture. So David W. Marks, um, is, he wrote a great history of Japanese, of American fashion um, after it had been kind of absorbed and remixed by the Japanese. Uh, but his latest book, Status and Culture, is more of a sociological, sociological book. And it's about, it's about the interaction between status and how humans naturally need status. Like in the same way that humans need water, need air, like status is one of these things that your ego needs to feed on. And you cannot, you cannot ignore that. It's a little taboo almost to talk about it but it's there. And because of that desire for status, it drives a lot of culture too. Like culture is, is this sort of conduit for status. So David breaks down all the mechanisms and, and tries to put a framework and explain all of it. Um, super interesting book, really worth reading. That just came out, I think last month. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. The last question, it's a bit of a funny one, but I just wanted to ask you this. Can you actually remember the first time you met me? You said you met me at the shop. Was that you the don't first remember, time? do you? I don't know. Okay, let me jog didn't your memory. You come because... up with a strap or something? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Can you yeah, remember who I came at... in with? Did you come up with Pat? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you do remember. Oh, okay, yeah. good. I'm glad I saw you. actually, that. like, he was looking for a strap. He was looking for the Drake's one, which is silk. Uh -huh. And I remember. Like, I didn't know you, I wasn't aware you were in the store. Well, obviously, I'd seen your stuff with Hadinki about the Cartier and stuff. Um, and I think one of your um, sales kind of pointed me in the right direction. And then you went on to take us to the other store. 
because that's where it was. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. Because you'd walked into the Petter Building store, I remember. That's correct, yeah. And we went down to the Landmark store together. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, I'm very good. glad I got to meet you, Daniel. <laughs> I'm going to edit All this right. a little bit. Oh. <laughs> getting a little teary yeah, now. Obviously, obviously, though, if, if you ever, like, see our comments on Instagram, we kind of, like, like sneakily <laughs> put the comments in, right? You... you read them and you'll see i have an idea of the relationship we share it's very funny <laughs> you know, it'll go, most of the time it'll go amiss that people don't even get it but like it, it, it's, the evidence is there right the love right. is there Dan. the love is there yeah so just before we finish mark would you like to give everybody a reminder of um your upcoming auction um where it's, where it's going to be the dates and everything all right you have to you have to indulge me i'm going to give three plugs Firstly, the plug would be for Horologic Side of New York. Um, we designed a bunch of stuff for them as like a thank you to donors, especially the upper membership tiers. So if you're a silver member uh, at $500 a year, you get this great tote bag. And if you're a gold member at $1,000 a year, uh, you get this great jacket that we designed for them called the 44th Street Jacket. Um, check that out. Like it's a wonderful organization. They do amazing lectures and it's in support of a great cause. Um, Secondly is the ideal watch size survey. Like if you have a chance, please, I would love a response from you guys. I'd love to hear your views on it. Uh, it's the ideal watch size survey.com. That's the shortcut to it. And then finally, as for my auction, uh, November 30th to December 6th, um, the auction catalog is not up yet. The auction catalog will be launching on November 30th. So you can see everything there. Uh, I'm going to slowly start dripping out a couple little preview photos on my Instagram at marcho.com. And uh, yeah, feel free to come by, see the watches, place a bid if you feel so inclined. But honestly, it would just be fun to come to the preview and see see stuff, right? Like, because I have some stuff that it's a bit weird. You might not necessarily get a chance to see it, and it's it's fun to see and learn. Mm. All right, final final question. Actually, you mentioned the jacket, which you made yeah. in collaboration. What is uh, special about that jacket? So the jacket, um, it's called the Forty Fourth Street Jacket. Uh, and it's based on the old Spanish Teba, which is old style of like European hunting jacket. And then we just tweaked the design a little bit. We made it in a special color. Uh, we made an olive green for the 44th, uh, for the Horlogh Society. And we also added a little hidden pocket on the inside for watches and a little tweezer pocket for, um, for watch tweezers. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again, Mark, for coming on to the show. Uh, really, no, my pleasure. It. Thanks for having me, man. I'm I'm always happy to talk to you guys. Thank you so much. For this. <laughs> it's great. Okay, we'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you, Long, as well. Bye. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening to the Waiting List podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the Waiting List podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.